Welcome to Accelerating Government with Act IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Welcome to another episode of Accelerating Government. For over 40 years, the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council has served a unique position in the federal marketplace as a nonprofit whose purpose is to bring together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a true national imperative, cybersecurity. We'll dig into the top issues and opportunities facing the government and also talk about the outstanding work of the U.S. Cyber Challenge Program. Our guest today will include Stephen Hernandez, Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Education, and also longtime federal technology leaders Luke McCormick and John Gilligan. So let's get to it. Today, our first guests are John Gilligan, President and Chief Executive Officer at the Center for Internet Security, longtime industry executive and former CIO at the Department of the Air Force and Department of the Energy. Welcome, John. Well, Dave, thanks. I'm delighted to be with you. Excellent. And then Luke McCormick is the National Director for the U.S. Cyber Challenge and former DHS CIO and former Vice Chair of the Federal CIO Council. Welcome, Luke. Pleasure to be here. As fellow former CIOs, it's great to have you both on the show today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today. John, we're going to go ahead and get started with you. You've been the CEO at the Center for Internet Security for almost three years, I think, and before that, you were chair of their board. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization and what it does? Sure, Dave, thank you. The Center for Internet Security is a nonprofit organization that focused, as the name would imply, on cybersecurity, improving the state of global cybersecurity. Founded in 2000, the focus of the organization has largely been on developing through consensus-based processes of security best practices. So our two primary areas of emphasis have been in working, again, through a consensus process to define what we call uh, security configuration benchmarks for commercial products, the most common commercial products of Windows, uh, Unix, Linux, et cetera. These then are provided to the communities and organizations who are able to implement them and ensure that their systems as they operate them are more secure. A second product that we have is called the critical security controls. And as the name implies, the intent is to focus on that subset of security controls that individuals, but primarily organizations, should implement to enhance their security. So the controls are derived from analysis, formal analysis of threat patterns to define the controls that are most important for organizations. So those are sort of the two focus areas. We have some tools that go along with that. Uh, In addition, um, now it's been uh, over 10 years, we absorbed an organization that was focused on state and local security, and it's called the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center uh, that is focused on improving the state of cybersecurity in the state and local environment. We have now almost 12,000 organizations across various state and local, tribal, and territorial organizations where we help them with advice, threat information, and in some cases, managed security services. Uh, Most recently, we took on a similar role focused on the elections infrastructure. So, Dave, in a nutshell, that's sort of, that's what we're about. A really top set of important issues that that are facing the nation today. Great to have you there, John, at the helm. Luke, you are now U.S. Cyber Challenge National Director on top of all your other august careers. And I wonder, you know, some of our audience may be very familiar with the work, but, uh, but others may not be. So can you tell us a little bit more about the U.S. Cyber Challenge, its mission, and how it's organized? Well, first of all, U.S. Cyber Challenge founded over a decade ago, and the mission is simple but significant. 
and it's to reduce the shortage in today's cyber workforce. And that's done through identifying, attracting, recruiting, and placing uh, the next generation cybersecurity professionals throughout the uh, both public and private sector community. That's done through a process where we reach out to the academic community and now more recently uh, the veteran community that's looking to reskill themselves. Uh, trying to focus on diversity uh, is another uh, area of emphasis these days. And we invite them to what's called a, a cyber quest, which is essentially a skills-based online environment where they can go through a process there, a set of testing. And whomever scores high in that environment, we then invite them to a cyber camp, uh, which we hold over the summer. Of course, the last two years we've done that virtually, which has worked out very successfully. And during that camp, week-long, hardcore, intensive, a lot of bare metal type of instruction, but also balanced with things like an ethics panel and a CIO CISO panel and a, you know, how do you write a resume type panel? Uh, it's a, it's the, the capstone of that is a competition that happens at the end of the week, uh, capture the flag competition, where the uh, various teams get assembled, compete against each other uh, for the, uh, the camp championship, if you will. Uh, it's something that uh, we're spending a lot of time focusing on uh, is, uh, you know, how to create these leaders, right? When we talk to the CIOs, we always hear about, uh, you know, look, we absolutely need the bare metal folks. We don't have enough of them. There's lots of activity going on right now, including uh, the National Cyber Scholarship Foundation and others that are really scaling that. Uh, but we also need to have geeks that can speak, if you will, folks that can really think critically, be able to balance the risk, talk to the CEOs, et cetera, and uh, also have some of that bare metal skill set blended with them. There are a whole new set of skills that are coming to the market that need to be there. And, and you mentioned you're also now doing work with veterans. Can you say a few more words about that part of the program? Yeah, we're, so we've reached out. We've, we've talked to the, uh, the, the, uh, the VA and some folks over there just to reach out to these, all these veterans that are coming back into the workforce, right? And we know that that's a, an area. And, we, and we've learned through uh, a variety of testing methods that uh, there's folks that can very easily be reskilled and become cyber warriors, if you will. And, and we know that that's a, uh, a resource that hasn't been tapped as much as it probably could, uh, along with, uh, not on, again, not only the veterans, I think the good news is while we all hear about this enormous glut of unbalanced uh, you know, skills versus capacity, uh, we know that there's a, a lot of uh, diversity and a lot of demographics that haven't been tapped into yet. So I think that's the silver lining on all this, that there, there, there's a whole lot of folks out there that just haven't been exposed early on uh, to the fact that can you be a cyber warrior? Can you be a CISO someday? And the answer is absolutely yes. When they start going through the testing and start getting the instruction, we learn that they, the, these folks can end up being uh, the best of the best. We're so delighted at ACT-IAC to be partnering with the Center for Internet Security and the U.S. Cyber Challenge to be able to bring to the audience the awards program that's coming up on October 6th. Luke, why don't we start with you and tell us a little bit more about what the awards program entails and what we should be seeing when for folks that can come to the event on October 6th. Well, it's two dimensions. One is uh, for, for years, traditionally, what has happened is these folks, whichever team would win at the camp, capture the flag and become the, the crowning champion of that camp, would then come to Washington, be recognized uh, in front of all their peers as the, uh, the champion of that camp, which w w was awesome and is still awesome. 
we recognize that now that we're virtual, right, we can kind of take that to the next level. So why not create what we're calling a cyber bowl where the camp champions and some of the other high scoring teams would then compete against each other. So we bring them in a week prior to the program that's going to be in October that we're partnering with uh, you all at ACT IACT. And uh, we send them through a, a, a battery of exercises. One is where they come together as a team and have to present a problem set to the CIO, the CEO, and the CISO of a sort of a mock organization, right? A real problem set. They have to present it, explain the risk, explain what kind of resources they need, et cetera. And then that gets scored. And then as soon as they're done with that, just a couple of short hours later, they then start on the National Cyber Bowl uh, capture the flag championship. And that's actually a 24 hour capture the flag exercise that goes from noon on a, on a Friday through the, uh, through the middle of the night, noon to the following Saturday, 24 hours of intensive capture the flag activity. Whoever wins that becomes the national champion. Of course, at that point, they don't know who's won and they won't know that until they come to the awards ceremony the following week where they're then recognized as a national champion. It's an exciting opportunity that we won't want to miss. We're going to have to take a quick break now. I would like to make sure the audience knows that the Cybersecurity Summit and U.S. Cyber Challenge Awards Program will take place virtually on Wednesday, October 6th. And you can register for the event by going to the ACTIAG website, www.actiac.org. We're going to take a quick break now. When we return, we're going to continue our conversation with John Gilligan and Luke McCormick. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACTIAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren, CEO of ACT-IAC, and our focus on today's show is cybersecurity. I'm joined in the virtual studio for this segment by two well-known federal technology leaders. John Gilligan is the president and CEO for the Center for Internet Security. Luke McCormick is the national director for the U.S. Cyber Challenge. Both are former federal agency CIOs with significant private sector experience. John and Luke, welcome back. As we were going to break, we were talking about the Cyber Awards program that's coming up at the event on October 6th. And John, I'd just like to give you a chance to sort of pile on about the, the importance of the awards program. Okay, thank you. It's important, as Luke described before the break, to recognize the best of the best and to do it in a, in a way that shows our appreciation for their skills and also highlights for them the potential career opportunities. So doing that in the forum with ACT-IAC is we're just delighted to have the opportunity uh, CIS is one of the sponsors uh, for the uh, Cyber Challenge program. So we're looking forward to, uh, to the event on the 6th. I, I would add that in addition to what Luke had described as some of the emphasis areas, I might suggest, uh, you know, we're also looking at where do we take this program? And as Luke described, increasing emphasis on leadership and communication. So we want people that are well-rounded, not just technical uh, skilled people. We're also looking a lot at diversity, and Luke mentioned trying to draw from diverse communities, and uh, we're looking at internship-type uh, programs, mentoring-type programs to try to help um, bridge the gap between uh, those who might not have had some of the advantages of getting into these, these types of programs early 
and to bring them along. So we're, we're looking forward to October 6th. As you all know from your leadership positions through the years, you know, we, we're very critical about things in DC and we don't often celebrate success enough. So being able to recognize these outstanding individuals will be great fun and we're looking forward to it on October 6th. Let, let's open the aperture a little bit broader now. You've both been technology leaders for a long time, both in and out of government. You've looked at life from both sides now. Cybersecurity, clearly a national imperative, new administration in place, obviously giving it a lot of attention what do you think are some of the top issues for the federal government going forward in cybersecurity? What should our audience be focused on in the year ahead? John, why don't we go ahead and start with you? Well, I think it's the audience well recognizes that the cybersecurity challenges only continue to grow. And so what I would want to highlight, I think, is that the processes, disciplines, and in some cases, the skill sets that we've relied on in the past are really not going to be sufficient in the future. Um, the speed with which we need to operate, the scale of the threat and the attacks, and the sophistication has reached uh, new levels. And so I think this is really sort of a wake-up call for, in this case, the federal government. It's also for industry as well. But there needs to be much more discipline and focus on this as a critical operational mission issue um, to, that's, that's absolutely essential to the success of each of the federal government organizations. So that's probably, if I were to put the emphasis on what is probably the most important is it's really a change of attitude, um, dramatic change of attitude to say, this is really important. We need to resource it. We need to you know, do the information sharing that's necessary. We need to ensure that we're getting the types of tooling that's going to allow us to be able to to both prevent um, attacks, but in those cases where the attacks might be successful to recognize them quickly and to limit their impact. How about you, Luke? What are, what's on your plate as a top priorities for federal agencies in the year ahead in the cyber front? Sure, I'm gonna take it another uh, deviation out, if you will, and talk about technical debt. I really think that the uh, over the course of, through our careers, right, all three of our careers, the debt that's been encountered from a technical perspective across the federal government is significant. And because of that, uh, you, you've got uh, s- uh, many, many aging systems that have very weak security uh, posture to them and, and are in environments that you really can't take advantage of some of these capabilities and tools and, and, and the skill sets to use these tools to the great extent that you should because they just can't, you know, they're just not compatible to do that and therefore makes them extremely vulnerable. And so I, I think really getting a handle on the technical debt issue, not just a sort of a bolus, not kind of a one year, I know there's a billion dollars out there in the TMF, but I think we're all learning how quickly we can spend that. And that's simply because of what we've accumulated over 20 years. I continue to say, I think this is a $25 billion issue. The good news is once you sort of get out of that and get up to sort of level ground, all these tools, techniques, and capability, cloud included, hybrid cloud, all these other various techniques, open source allows you then to maintain something that's much more hard and much more progressive, uh, allows you to deliver those capabilities to the, uh, you know, that promise to the citizen, if you will, but do it very securely and very rapidly. You have both been longtime leaders in the community and uh, champions for the workforce. And, uh, and, and as you both have mentioned already, the nature of the work is changing. As we move to a cloud-based mobile world, security skills are looking different. And then just wonder, maybe we start with you, Luke. 
and then go to you, John, talk a little bit about, you know, federal agencies attracting and then also retaining that workforce of the future. What kind of skill sets and what priorities should we be placing on the workforce, Luke? Yeah, you know, I'm going to twist that a little bit, if you will. I I really think that, um, you know, when we talk about attracting and retaining uh, the workforce into the to the into the federal environment. Um, I love the DOJ attorney model, right? Spending a couple of years over there, where they reach out to these attorneys during law school. They come in, they do internships at DOJ. They cut their teeth over there. Uh, in most cases, they're actually getting their law school paid for. They pay it back by service in in, in the department. And then they stay there for some years. Some stay for their entire career. Lots of them uh, fleet out and go into the private sector. And then they come back. And I would submit to you that if you look at uh, most of those uh, operating entities inside of DOJ and other areas, uh, they're run by folks that used to be at DOJ years ago as an intern. And I think that's what we need to be looking at is, is building out that entire ecosystem and saying, hey, it's okay to bring these folks in have them work here for four or five years. Some will work for 25 years, then fleet out, get some private sector experience, and then come back in. I love that idea. And I'd like to, I know we're doing sort of versions of that, sort of patchwork, if you will. I'd like to see that mature over time into just a natural flow of talent that comes in, stays, or perhaps goes out and then comes back in. It's a great point. Uh, the fungibility of the workforce and the fact that the vast majority of the federal technology budget ends up in the hands of the private sector, too, is really, as we used to say, the Department of the Navy, a total workforce issue. Uh, John, how about you? Cyber talent thoughts? Yeah, I, I would maybe uh, piggyback a little bit on Luke's uh, recommendation and maybe extend. I, I think his observation that what DOJ does in terms of bringing on interns is a great model. And, and there's wonderful opportunities. One of the things that we've noted through the U.S. Cyber Challenge Program is we find in some cases these wonderfully talented individuals who are the cream of the crop and the winner of the Cyber Bowl, but they have a hard time getting a job because they don't have any practical experience. And so um, I think expanding significantly the opportunities for government agencies very flexibly to bring in um, interns while the, uh, the students are in, in school and uh, to give them that hands-on experience. And then um, what I would extend is there really needs to be a fairly clear career path for them. And it's, uh, as I think we know, it's a different career path. We are finding that people we train in government are going out into industry because of the demand and are able to command much larger salaries. So I think you need to look at pay scales and advancement and continued training and development. Um, it's important to be able to keep, keep the folks so they can rise up within the organization and you know, maybe go into private industry, but be able to come back. The problem right now is somebody goes into private industry, they can never come back because they can't, they can't afford to take that. A great point to make and a great place to leave it for today. Uh, John Gilligan is the president and CEO at the Center for Internet Security, former CIO of both the Department of Air Force and Department of Energy, as well as a former industry leader. And Luke McCormick is the national director for the U.S. Cyber Challenge and former DHS CIO, former vice chair of the Federal CIO Council. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for joining us today. 
My pleasure, Dave. Thank you, Dave. All right. As a reminder, the ACT-IAC Cybersecurity Summit and U.S. Cyber Challenge Awards Program will take place on Wednesday, October 6th. Register now for the event. It'll be a virtual event, easy to attend, www.actiac.org. We'll take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by Department of Education Chief Information Security Officer Stephen Hernandez. I'm Dave Wenergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wenergren, CEO of ACT-IAC. Today's episode is shining a spotlight on a top federal technology issue that's also an imperative for the entire nation, cybersecurity. Joining me now is a true cyber thought leader. Stephen Hernandez is the Chief Information Security Officer of the Department of Education. He's the Vice Chair of the Federal CISO Council and the Government Chair of the ACT-IAC Cybersecurity Community of Interest. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me here today. Delightful to have you. And we're looking forward to the conversation. It really is a top priority. And we're going to get into what's what are some of the priorities right now. But by way of introduction, Stephen, why don't we start with, tell us a little bit about your government career arc. What led you to government service? And highlight a little on where that journey's taken you. And we'll work our way up to the present moment. Great. Early, early in my academic career, um, I was approached by a principal investigator. And the point I was at was finishing up a bachelor's degree and he said, hey, would you like the government to pay for your MBA? And I thought, you know, those are expensive. That, that seems like a good idea. Uh, and so I got recruited into one of the very first cohorts in the scholarship for service program. So basically they'd finish off two years of a master's degree. And then at the end of it, I would owe the government a couple of years. Well, I've been in the government now around a decade. So I think the, the, they've definitely got their money's worth. And I actually started my full-time government career at the US Department of Education. Um, came in there, worked a lot in the certification and accreditation risk management space, uh, and then got pulled over into the law enforcement world. Uh, spent about the next eight years at the Inspector General's office at the Department of Health and Human Services. Served in a variety of roles there, most often in a CISO role, but also went over into the CIO role, the CTO role, security engineering role, and really got a feel for the business of IT, as well as the, the just the amazing programmatic impact IT can have on uh, from there, I, I went to the U.S. Department of Education as their CISO, and that's where I'm at right now. Um, and as part of that, I, I got, was asked to co-chair the, the Federal CISO Council, which I, I gladly accepted. And I've been doing that for about three years now. And of course, I think I've been in the ACT-IACT role for about the same amount of time. And it's just been uh, incredible because we've been able to really drive hard on some transformative work. Uh, I know we're going to touch on a lot of that throughout the conversation, but that's the thumbnail of the roadmap as to where I got to, to how I am today. We're delighted you got there because cybersecurity really is a national imperative and it's so much in the headlines now. And so maybe from here, let's segue to a little bit about in your role as the CISO, the Department of Education, what are some of your top priorities and where are you spending your time? Yeah, so, you know, most folks know the Department of Education for, for one of our primary missions, and that's protecting the rights of students to, to get that educational opportunity. So no matter where you live, your zip code, your, your funding, your, your mental state, physical state, we're, we're going to push hard to make sure that you're going to get that educational opportunity. Now, the other side of the house that folks don't always connect the dots, but when they do, it's an aha moment is that, that financial aid side. 
when you look at us from the balance sheet, we're really a bank. Um, if we were measured by accounts receivable, we'd be easily in the top five in the United States any given day and easily in the top 10 in the world. And, you know, we talk about the 1.5 or so trillion dollar account receivable that's federal student aid. That's us. On any given year, depending on what Congress needs us to do, we could broker another few trillion through us. Um, that's a, a big line of business for us. So in my job, when I look at risk management and cybersecurity, I'm really looking at, one, how do I protect and advance this awesome programmatic side about educational opportunity and making sure that that indelible improvement's available for anyone in the United States who wants it, but then also effectively running one of the world's largest banks and making sure that we're protecting that investment and also ensuring that we don't lose the public's trust in our ability to execute our job. It's an awesome, awesome position to be in. And I love your positive attitude about it because it is an awesome opportunity to make a difference. The, the whole idea about particularly when so much is at stake, to be able to move from a sort of culture of risk avoidance to risk management is just so important. And I know you talk a lot about that. How's that work going? And, and, and where are you seeing progress being made in, in the move to a more manage, understand and accept some risk? Yeah, so, you know, I think that we've made steps in, in that space that some would have never thought possible. And it, it goes back to that comic where it's a CIO a multiple choice. And it says, you know, what was your innovation strategy this year? And it's, you know, oh, I, I looked at the future and I forecasted or, oh, I decided to go on a cost-based model or whatever. Option D is COVID and it's got like a thousand circles around it, right? Um, COVID for all of its negativity um, out of it has actually come a, an incredible amount of innovation. And not just innovation in IT, but also how we think about risk management. You know, five years ago, if you were to ask folks, could the majority of the federal workforce work remotely for a year, a year plus, they probably would have chuckled and, and said something about the federal workforce and it imploding on itself. Yet we have proven that as a federal government, through technology, we are more productive in many cases than we've ever been before. But that has meant we've had to make some really smart risk trade-offs in the cybersecurity space. And what's really great is our partners over at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, our partners in the White House and the Office of Management and Budget, they've been lockstep with us. And they recognize that if we are to execute our mission and get these services out to the public, we have to be able to take risk and look at it through a different lens. Yeah, the, clearly the burning platform of the pandemic changed so much. Is there a lesson learned out of the pandemic that you want to make sure we don't lose sight of as we go forward? In DoD, we often talk about the difference between lessons observed and lessons learned when I was there. What's a lesson learned you'd like to take away and not lose sight of? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a DoD student myself. I love the observe, orient, do, act, uh, or decide, <laughs> act, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's very much the situation we're in. And I think there's two takeaways that really resonate. One is this idea that we can work in ways never thought possible when we're pushed hard enough. And then two, kind of the complementary piece of that idea is we don't need a, a global pandemic to drive this type of innovation and change in how we do business in IT and cybersecurity. And those are the two pieces that I really hope we don't lose because Everyone else around us, including our attackers and including those in the private sector who compete for a very scarce workforce, they do see that and they're going to take full advantage of it going forward. Well said. And then like you didn't have enough busy enough day job, it says you said you became co-chair of the federal CISO council. Tell us a little bit about what are the priorities for the CISO council? Where are agencies focusing their time? 
So we've been an incredibly busy. Um, and, you know, one of the, the large drivers that we started probably about three years ago from a, a request from Sylvia Burns is around this idea of zero trust architecture. And, uh, you know, the early work, we started that act I act um, at the request and we produced kind of the version one of the state of the possible. And my golly, has that thing grown legs? You know, we have version two of the act I act work now. Lots of other folks have taken interest. NIST has put out publications on it. Other groups are working on their own versions of products. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing products come out from OMB. Uh, just um, a few days ago, we released the, the zero trust architecture out for public comment, which is, you know, a lot of people are like, holy, what is this? Public comment, really? On a, on a White House type MMO? And the answer is yes, because it is so vitally important that we get this right, that we want every possible perspective we can get. And that has really consumed us. How do we move forward? And we've been doing a good job at it, this conversation of moving from compliance to effectiveness. What does that look like and how do we do it? We've been incrementally working towards it and ZTA, that zero trust architecture is really the next accelerator that's gonna move the vast majority of departments and agencies forward. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. We also spent a lot of time talking about things like workforce and making sure that we've got a pipeline of good talent that's ready, willing, able, and excited and passionate about government service that's gonna be able to come in. And when I move on to greener pastures, I've got my backfills already in place. Succession planning is so important and is so much a part of a leader's job. And, and I'm so delighted to hear you say that because I think, you know, so often when we grow up in a more technical discipline and then we make that shift from being the practitioner to being the leader, you know, that your job charge suddenly becomes full of people issues. And so it's just really, really an important thing to keep in mind. And, and maybe, you know, we got another minute or so before we have to take a quick break, but while we talk a little bit more about the workforce, like attracting, retaining the cybersecurity workforce is so important. And, and what are some of your thoughts about that. It's, it's incredibly challenging. Uh, we're, we're competing with the private sector. We're, we're competing with the not-for-profits. We're competing with academia. Um, you know, ISC squared and other studies forecast shortages in the millions in the next five to 10 years. And so we have to figure out how we can get it right. It used to be we could offer work-life balance that others couldn't in the government. We can say, you know what, 40 hours a week, great telework benefits, etc. Uh, but frankly, the private industry can meet us and in some cases beat us there now. Um, and so I think two things are going to happen. One, we just have to reiterate the importance and just how significant the mission that we do is. Uh, and it's a mission unlike you'll, you'll get anywhere else. And then two, we really have to work on that pipeline. I'm a product of scholarship for service. We need to keep growing those types of programs where we get fresh folks in that, you know, yeah, they've got a two-year commitment, but hopefully in those two years, we can put career ladders in place and build that passion for the mission to keep them in the service. All right, well said. We're going to take a quick break now. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. 
I'm Dave Wintergren, CEO of ACDIAC, and we're talking with Stephen Hernandez, the Department of Education CISO, Vice Chair of the Federal CISO Council, and Government Chair of the ACDIAC Cybersecurity Community of Interest. Stephen, let's pick up the conversation where we left off before the break. You talked about the zero trust work that's been going on in government. It is a profound difference. I mean, the world has changed so much from like, you know, two decades ago, a world of enclave and intrusion detection and protection to like this cloud-based mobile world. And so maybe for the sake of some of the members of the audience that aren't that familiar with Zero Trust, let's talk a little bit about some of the imperatives that Zero Trust brings to the table. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's talk about some of the core pillars. And really, we're talking about like four or five of them. And, uh, you know, on the ACT-IAC site, we have the first version of the Zero Trust work, which unpacks this. It's frankly where I'm, I'm going to pull this from. And the first step is around data. Yeah, you have to know what data you've got, what your crown jewels are, what's more hay than, than gem, and you need to be able to, to get your arms around it and know where those they are throughout your environment because then the next piece of data, the other side of the data coin is the telemetry and information around that data. What's happening? Who's, who's trying to get access to that data? And what sensors do you have in place to make sense of it? So data is one pillar. The next pillar is identity, making sure that you have a strong ICAM program or an IAM, Identity and Access Management or Identity Credential and Access Management program. This means making sure that when somebody says, hey, I'm Stephen Hernandez, there is a high level of assurance that I've been vetted, that account's been only given to me, and that really I'm the only one that could be using that account. But Zero Trust takes it a little further and says it's not just people, but it's non-person entities. We might have a service that's trying to get access to that data. We might have a, a device trying to get access to that data. So when we think about that, we have to extend the definition of identity. OMB Memorandum 1917 does a great job of that. And then once we have our arms around identity, we talk about kind of the two cool pieces. The All of them are cool, depending where you work. But the, the two kind of forward-leaning, there we go, forward-leaning pieces are the first around the control fabric or the control plane. This is where we're taking all these new and incredible capabilities like software-defined WAN, perimeter, and network. We're taking technologies like encryption, technologies that continuously authenticate, continuously evaluate access, and we're deploying them into the field, and then we're getting all that data back here again into the data plane. And then the final piece is what's called the trust engine. Some people call this the policy engine, the policy enforcement engine, but this is where we leverage capabilities like machine learning, like artificial intelligence, maybe robotic process automation to make sense of all this data at the speed of machines, the speed of electrons to start effectuating control in that control plane. You do it right, you have a living, breathing, zero trust architecture that could monitor access authenticate it continuously in near real time and get visibility and reporting back and frankly, make decisions to protect the enterprise faster than any human ever could. It is such a rapidly changing world. And uh, you know, I have a great fondness in my heart about identity management issues, having cared a lot about those back in my days at the Department of the Navy and Department of Defense. And, and as you said, like the world is changing so rapidly. I mean, you know, you have you have bots that need identities now as to implement RPA at agencies. And so what are some of the things you see coming next in the identity space that will be important for the federal market? Yeah. So, you know, identity is one of those areas where I think we're going to see a lot more conversation. 
And I think the identity proofing, we're going to continue to see a huge push in that area. I think that uh, here again, the pandemic has pushed us to our limits in terms of what we have available in proofing technologies. But at the end of the day, if you can't prove an identity, you can't start assigning trust to it, or you can assign very little trust to it in a zero trust world. So I think that identity proofing and being able to prove identities at distance, or in some cases virtually, I think we're going to see a lot of evolution in that space. Additionally, I think we're going to see um, being able to prove identities through other industry factors uh, that don't involve in-person proofing, and probably reserving the in-person proofing for the most demanding of cases. It would be fascinating to watch. You talked about it with such authority, but you know, I just want to sort of foot stomp it for the audience that the, the whole zero trust premise is so radically different from the security models of even just a few years ago. It, it really is a compelling change. It's an absolutely mandatory change because as we both said, you know, we live in a world where in a pandemic world, you got to be connected from anywhere. It's only just further emphasize this point that... Uh, having security solutions that are sort of hard on the outside, but then soft and gooey once you get in the center, just don't work anymore. It's awesome to see the work that's being done there. And I appreciate your leadership of that. As, as you sort of look, you know, cybersecurity obviously been a top priority for the new administration. As you said, you know, there was a lot of cybersecurity talk and, and publication at the beginning, and now we have the zero trust documentation out. What, what do you see from your perch on the CISO Council and at your agency that are going to be other top priorities in the cybersecurity space for federal agencies in the year ahead? Yeah, so I think we've already seen some of them. Um, the first, you know, along with that zero trust strategy, we had a couple other documents put out for public comment from CISA. Uh, the first around their zero trust architecture maturity model. And this is great to see because like when we were doing the first work around zero trust, the version 1.0 through Act IACT, this is one of the areas where we really wanted to get to, but we just didn't have enough runway to do it. It's like, no, we got to get the stuff we're tasked to do, and then we'll get that in flight. Uh, what was great was CISA saw that opportunity and said, we, we can put this together. And so there's a great framework out there for measuring maturity. It aligns well with everything we've done. And people are thinking about how do I start mapping to this maturity model in terms of capabilities. The other document that's out there is around secure cloud migration. And it's not just secure cloud migration. Frankly, it's a great primer and a great standard to look at for anything cloud security. Part of what makes zero trust work and a zero trust architecture work is agility. And frankly, in almost all cases, the only place you can get that type of agility is in the cloud. And so here again, as part of the ZTA move, CISA is helping us and saying, as you move workloads into the cloud, here's a secure way to do it. So you get off on the right foot square one and you're positioning yourself to advance in the maturity model for ZTA. Of all the top technology issues facing the federal marketplace, perhaps most important is that we're all in this together. And so uh, so we've given some advice about what would be top priorities for government. What's some advice for our industry audience that's listening? Yeah, so the number one thing I'll say to, to the industry is as we look at ZTA, uh, one, none of you all have the end-to-end -end solution. And those of you that are honest about it and recognize ZTA is truly an architecture, a journey, and a program, we really appreciate that. Having said that, where we're at right now in industry is we have a lot of silos of excellence and, and many of the ZTA offerings and capabilities, they come with things like AI and machine learning and, and great you know, ZTA mappings, but it's contained within that ecosystem. 
And what we're going to be looking at across the government is I need enterprise-wide visibility and parity with all of these tools and vendors. Those vendors that can play well, give me access to the data so I can match it up with others and also affect change and control in your tools, they're going to do really well. Those that continue to be isolated or try to kind of own everything in one little box, it's going to be a more difficult road for them. And so I would say, figure out how to be a little more open with your control structure and also your data accessibility. Stephen, you have been an outstanding leader in the field. You know, what's some advice you'd like to offer those in the audience who are just beginning their careers in cybersecurity, either in the government or in the industry? What's some mentoring advice you'd like to leave the audience with? I would say that, you know, just start somewhere and go. Uh, I'm still learning every single day about this field. And I've always loved the expression, you know, embarrassment is just the price of admission. Don't be afraid to ask the question. Don't be afraid to find a mentor. Don't be afraid to go and say, you know, I want to reset my my career and I want to go talk to some folks in the cybersecurity shop and figure out a path to get there. Um, there will be no dearth uh, or no, no shortage of cybersecurity jobs. We have a negative unemployment rate. Some of us have more than one job in cybersecurity. And so, you know, we welcome anybody and everybody that wants to join ranks with us. I love that advice. Just go. It's no time to sit still. Stephen Hernandez is the Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Education. Stephen, it's been delightful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dave. Really enjoy the time. Don't forget the ACT-IAC Cybersecurity Summit and the U.S. Cyber Challenge Awards Program will take place on Wednesday, October 6th as a virtual event. Easy to register for. Just go to the ACT-IAC website, www.actiac.org. On today's episode, we heard about the imperative for new thinking and bold action to improve cybersecurity across the nation. The weakest link is always the easiest pathway in for those who wish to cause us harm. And so this is an area where failure is not an option and clearly a crucial opportunity for industry and government to work together to accelerate government mission outcomes. I'm Dave Wondergren. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll be back for our next episode. This has been Accelerating Government brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.